Life Issues with Vicky Gibbons on UCB One. When we hear about war-torn nations, communities impacted by natural disasters, or even when we experience personal tragedy, there is much in this world which can unsettle us and make us afraid. But in John's Gospel, imminently before his crucifixion, we find Jesus with his disciples, not only breaking bread and washing their feet, but also comforting them. Jesus tells them to not let their hearts be troubled because he is giving to them and to us today a peace that only God's Son could offer. And in Life Issues, that's what we're seeking to find, those living out the call to be peacemakers today. Dan Morris isn't an investigative journalist, undercover agent or pioneer explorer. He's an ordinary guy, a geography teacher, a man with too much curiosity for his own good. And he's written a book about his journey of faith from the mines of Chile to the deserts of the Middle East. He joins me now. And Dan, through your experiences, is it fair to say this wasn't initially about finding God's peacemakers, but more a personal frustration that so often we can be exposed to indoctrination by capturing the worst of humanity and life? You say the aggressive minority so often steals the news headlines. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, And I think for me, my passion was that I knew that there were good things happening. Um, it's not that I was kind of looking for a needle in a haystack of the, of the peacemakers. It's that actually there was, there was good happening all over the world. And I think the reason why we don't hear so much is just a, a reflection of the way media is communicated in this generation. Um, we have so many sources, um, both from the mainstream press and from social media. We have so many sources of information but for them to compete. They just have to shout louder, grab your attention, whatever it is. And actually, the sort of um, the more negative sides of human nature tend to get people's attention quicker, um, whether that's anger or frustration. Uh, you know, the seven deadly sins get get the clickbait, shall we say? And so that's just kind of why people do it. I don't think you know anyone's out to really depress people, but that you know that's just the way the market works. They, people want to get your attention, and shock horror does it better than nice inspiring stories so (laughs) the media's move more towards the shock horror and i just feel like it's had a really negative impact on on individuals but as a society if you're used to just hearing negative news if you're used to associating bad things with certain people groups if you're used to just being demoralized on a day-to-day basis then you sort of lose hope. It can be difficult, you know, and it, it sort of feeds that cynicism that like, oh, that won't work, or he won't last, or she won't make it, or that, you know. <laughs> and so I think there's that sort of undercurrent in British culture, which has just been fanned into flame by constant negativity. And I just wanted to come in the opposite spirit, um, just to say, look, here the heroes. <laughs> um, and even in difficult situations, that's what I wanted to really capture. It's very easy to be a peacemaker, to find hope, to find real freedom and love and life when you're on holiday, say, or when you're listening to a beautiful worship song or something. But in a really difficult situation, to come in the opposite spirit and be a, to find peace and love and joy, to reach out in love to your enemies, um, that sort of courage and that sort of kindness, that's the really inspiring stuff because that's what changes the environment. Um, and that's I wanted to, to capture those stories just to bring some real hope and some inspiration in amongst all the negativity to say, look, this all this bad stuff might be happening, but this is the hope. These, this is the way out, <laughs> you know? And I really wanted just to capture stories. I wouldn't say 
there's any five-step guides to being a peacemaker in the book or anything like that. It's not much teaching. It's just I wanted to capture the lives well lived. And I think when people hear a good story and they're inspired, you just sort of, you almost just imitate it without trying. You know what I mean? These things are better caught than taught, I've heard people say. You just, when you find a role model, you just end up catching their vision and you don't almost know how it happened. You just do it. And I wanted to give people those role models. So when it comes to the Chilean miners, obviously this was a situation that just grabbed the world's attention. And it was a weird dynamic, wasn't it? That tension between, yes, we did want a rescue, but as you've described, huge scepticism around the world because of just the probability of that being able to happen. So just rewind the clock for us. Remind us, because it was a huge bit of rock. You describe it as something like, you know, 200,000 elephants plummeting down this mine yeah. and then what happened who was underground remind us oh yeah um yeah thanks Vicky. it was so to be honest it was such a great story and i think that like you're right the whole world was captured um and just i actually quite sympathetic with the skeptics because their chance of survival really was quite slim i don't think people were trying to <laughs> steal the family's <laughs> hope but you have to manage people's expectations and uh yeah so to give you the facts that you asked it was um the, the mega block, as they called it, that collapsed in the heart of the mine, was twice the weight of the Empire State Building. Um, and they were nearly half a mile underground, you know, no food, water, oxygen, light, all the kind of things you'd need were not guaranteed. Like they might have been able to get light from their batteries. There might have been enough oxygen. They might have had a bit of water. I think it had three days emergency rations, but it was kind of, they were clutching at straws. So they, they, if some of them survived the collapse and they made it to what they called the refuge, which was the sort of designated safe space, if some people got there, they might survive a couple of days if they weren't seriously injured. That was kind of how it was put. And But no one really dared think that all of them survived. And then because it took so long to find them, it was 17 days before they made contact. By that point, people thought, there's no chance. And so when that moment happened and the drill swung off course seemingly by itself, um, fortuitously in the right direction, and it punctured this air pocket and there was banging on the end of a drill, which is what they expected. If the miners saw it, they would bang on the end to say we're alive. And um, they brought the drill back up and attached to the end was a note saying, we are all well, the 33. And I think the world just thought, no way. It was beyond anyone's wildest dreams, you know? And actually the moment was caught by the cameras. I, there's a documentary I made about um, the rescue called Miracle in the Mine. You can see it on the um, Luke X YouTube channel. And there's a little moment it was caught when the drillers just dropped to their knees and they were cheering and crying. And it was just pure joy, pure elation that they'd found these guys. And for me, I just hadn't seen anything in the media quite like it. Like when, when was the last time you saw a scene of such out of control relief and joy? It was beautiful. And so that was enough for me to think, oh, I've got to pursue this story. And so, Dan, uh, that's the point, though, isn't it? You you wouldn't describe yourself as a journalist, a man that's curious, and it wasn't enough to, to watch documentaries, to read autobiographies. What did you do next then? Well, I wrote to um, one of the miners, so Jose Enriquez, um, amazing guy. He was the one they called the pastor. Um, he wasn't a pastor, you know, it wasn't, he was a miner like the rest of them. But he had a real relationship with God that the other sort of just sort of respected. And I think he'd had a few chats to some of them before. He was a bit, he was one of the older miners. So a sort of, sort of unofficial father figure, you know, in a lot of workplaces you get a sort of uncle type who's your go-to mm. when you're a bit upset about something. 
Um, and he was sort of that guy. I mean, there's others as well, but he was a bit of a father figure to some of them in the mine. Um, and so when it collapsed and they just noticed, like, this guy's got a real piece about him. So they said, look, Jose, what's going on with you? You don't seem particularly flustered. And he said, look, God's got our backs. Trust, it's going to be okay. He had a real faith. Um, and he had had dreams and he had his family been praying before. I think his, um, his grandmother had given him a, a word to his mother to give to him before he'd gone down. And they had another prophecy while he was in the mine, all kind of saying, Jose, it's going to be a dark place, but it's going to be okay. And he had quite a almost supernatural reassurance of this before he got into the mine. So he was like, oh, don't worry. God's got our backs. And the other miners were, you know, quite astounded by that faith. And so they said, what should we do? And he just got them praying. Um, so he got them down on their knees. They all sort of repented of, you know, I mean, they'd all gone into the mine knowing as a risk. And I think some of them felt a bit guilty about, you know, their families didn't know how much of a risk they were taking, should we say. And he said, look, let's just say sorry, ask God for help. And his first prayer was, Lord, we're not the best of men, but have mercy on us. And there was such a humility in him and such a faith and such a peace. And I read his book and I just thought I'd love to meet this guy and kind of hear um, the story from him firsthand. So I wrote a letter to his publisher, uh, Zondervan in the US, and said, could you forward this on to Jose? Because I didn't know his address. <laughs> it was a bit of a long shot and <laughs> I didn't hear anything for months. I couldn't contact Zondervan. The kind of line went dry. But um, bless them, they had sent the letter. And one day I just got an email out of the blue from Jose saying, brother Dan, here's my cell phone number. Call me when you land. So um, that was it. Off I went. Um, and that that trip just snowballed. I, I took a friend, um, Louise, to help film, and Ross to help translate. He was an English teacher in Madrid at the time. Um, and, you know, we weren't a team of investigative journalists or, you know, or top secret agents or ambassadors or anything. We're just, you know, three teachers with one phone number. Um, curious, like you say. And uh, we had a wonderful time with Jose. He introduced us to Omar Regedas, one of his friends. and. He introduced us to Alex Vega, another miner, and Carlos Barrio and Martita, who was the um, head of social services of the Atacama region. And we ended up meeting the chaplain to the president. And it just snowballed. We just, you know, every time God opened the door, we went through it and people shared their story. And it felt like there was, it felt like the trip was being coordinated, that a story was being written. And we were just sort of taking part um, <laughs> um, because we, you know, because we weren't, really running the trip or didn't have these details it just one thing led to another and so i had a sort of assurance that there was something in this that god wanted us to tell this story so he just went with it really um and i wrote down the interviews i made that little documentary and i sent you know a, a couple of chapters to um uh you know an editor and said what do you think and just had real encouragement saying i think there's a story in this so yeah i took a break from work and kept going basically <laughs> the Chilean miners was the the beginning of a story and Jose's story of, of course his prayer I know has sustained you on many of your journeys especially across the desert as well you're listening to Life Issues on UCB my guest Dan Morris who has written the book Finding the Peacemakers a journey of faith from the mines of Chile to the deserts of the Middle East Dan what is it when you meet someone like Jose? What is what would you describe as peace or being a peacemaker? Ooh, good question. Um, I think with Jose, and this is why I wanted to actually meet people in real life rather than just sort of read their stories, because mm. there is something you catch in someone's very presence that you can't 
you can't fake it. And I think this culture is used to being, um, we're used to sort of fake news and used to people sort of stretching the truth, whether that's on their CV or their social media feed, you know. Um, and when you meet someone and they're so authentic, they're really honest, they're really vulnerable, what, you know, you understand that the way they are with you is the way they just are. Um, there's no front. And Jose had that authenticity, I'd say. Um, which then it puts you at peace because you're like, you know, you, <laughs> you're not trying to work out what he's really thinking or saying because he's just honest. And with that, he was also very humble. So he wasn't trying to convince us that he was something great. You know, there was no sort of um, bragging or anything like that. It was so, it was the opposite of that. He was just like, look, God has had, God has looked after us. And he was really clear that the hero of the story was, was Jesus. And, and as the answer to his prayers, there was no, he didn't, he was actually quite um, concerned that we wouldn't uh, sort of make him too much of a hero. He's like, look, I'm just a servant of God doing my thing. Um, God rescued us. And so that humility and that authenticity. And also he was just quite fun. He was happy to laugh at himself and <laughs> make little jokes. And so there was just a tenderness to him. And I think when people are like that, when they're not trying to prove themselves, there's just a real sort of humility and a real faith to them. I think it puts people at ease because it almost invites you into their story in a way, if they're trying to like preach at you or trying to like convince you of something or trying to like prove themselves, you can be quite off-putting. Whereas when people don't have that guard at all, they're just like, this is me, you've got nothing to prove. Um, it's actually really refreshing. And I sense that in Jose. And that's, I think for me, one of the things about a peacemaker is it's quite it's quite sacrificial. If you If you really want peace with God and with your neighbor, if you want peace in society, if you want, peace and situations of conflict, then it involves forgiveness and sacrifice. And it does involve a sort of laying down of your life, of your agenda, of your right to be understood or popular, whatever. And when people are quite happy to have that surrender and say, look, I'm just serving God. He's got my back. I don't need to prove myself. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Mm. And it's difficult to describe. Um, but I would say to people listening, when you meet someone like that, just remember it. Uh, remember what it's like and I think when you see it you want to be like it um, and I saw it in the people I met and I of course I saw it most you know I, you see it most clearly in the life of Jesus he had nothing to prove <laughs> even though he was uh, you know the greatest human being that's ever lived at the very incarnation of God you'd think he could have he could have wandered around Galilee boasting like check me out and he never did uh, even when he healed people he would say your faith has healed you and there was such a humility and such a kindness with his words um, that, no wonder people felt at ease in his presence and felt accepted. Um, and so, yeah, that for me was the first step in understanding the heart of a peacemaker. So, Dan, you take us from Chile to then some adventures in Europe. And as you've been describing, peacemaking, so much more than just finding satisfaction in life, but finding that wholeness and sharing stories of people who have suffered so much and yet almost seem to strive harder to offer peace to those around them. I think of Karim, a born Syrian Christian. Tell us a bit about his story. Yeah, and to be honest, he had a massive impact on me um, for that exact reason. That, um, that, and I mentioned this before, that um, it's easy to have peace when everything's going well. Mm -hmm. It's much harder to have peace when that seems like a ridiculous thing in light of your circumstances. So for Kareem, he um, had a, a terrible accident when he was 13 years old, 
um, he got into an argument with some people in his community about religion. They were from different faiths, and it got quite heated. And someone threw a can of petrol on him and set him on fire. And uh, he was lucky to survive. He ended up in hospital with third degree burns. And he took him a long time of recovery. He was very scarred, and um, he couldn't see um, to begin with. And it was a long recovery, but he did fully recover. It was a beautiful story of, of you know, medical care. Um, and obviously, faithful believers praying for him. But actually, his physical recovery was amazing. Um, but in these sort of circumstances, as you can imagine, the sort of mental, emotional trauma doesn't just—it doesn't heal like skin. It's, sometimes mm. it's deeper. Um, and he left uh, Syria, um, to cut a long story short, and he settled in Europe. But he carried that hurt with him. And when he was actually, when he was back visiting um, the Middle East, he was one of the Gulf states with work, and he met some Arab believers. And they really prayed for him and, and just kind of saw this guy needs some real healing and some real sort of rescuing from his past. Um, and just, you know, a lot of uh, believers in you know normal church setting, if you meet someone that's really struggling, people often come up for prayer or whatever. And I think they just had real compassion on him. They're like, this guy's trapped. This guy's carrying so much hurt. And you don't want to see people carrying that. You want to see them released. So they really prayed for him. They really stuck by him as a friend. You know, like a normal friend would do. You're, you're there for someone, sometimes just being present, a shoulder to cry on, whatever. And gradually, he really started to let go of his past and really found a new love for the Arab world. So despite being like, born and raised um, a Syrian Christian, he really sort of fell out of love with the Arab world and kind of learned the language of his new country and just kind of settled, settled in Europe. It felt a, a sort of rekindled love for his, you know, his kindred spirits, his people. <laughs> and so, and God gave him a real vision actually to move back to where he was in, in Europe and, uh, and to be ready for a sort of wave of refugees. And this was pre-Arab Spring. He didn't really know what that meant, but he did. He went back home, he prepared sort of organization really to welcome refugees and then the Arab Spring kicked off and suddenly there was thousands of people flooding into Europe and he was ready God had prepared him and actually the healing that he had ex himself experienced and a real freedom from his past and a sort of love for um, the people that he associated with the trauma of the past he had gone through that process and he was able to offer that same sort of thing to other people so other people fleeing trauma had themselves been hurt he was able to say, yeah, I know what that's like. I've been there. And this is the road I walked to freedom and forgiveness and love. And it was so genuine. It wasn't just someone who had read a five-step guide to being forgiven. You know? mm -hmm. This was someone who had walked that path themselves, who had really let go of past hurts. And you could see it in his face. And so when we met him and the translator I had with me, Dan Green, and we were both like, this guy is the most joyful guy <laughs> we've ever met. And it was so extraordinary. Um, and for me, this is what started me thinking and writing. The way I sort of told that story is I'm like, it has to be something divine. Um, and I think, like, I love to chat to people of all faiths and none. And the book is really written for, um, for a mixed audience. It's not, and it's not very religious <laughs> in terms of a tone and language. It's really the kind of book I wanted to write for my Christian friends and non-Christian friends. Um, and this is one of the things I raised, because actually a lot of people would say of, you know, from a sort of um, agnostic point of view, you know, did he just learn to find the strength within? Or, you know, there's all sorts of um, secular explanations for spiritual experiences. And I think Kareem was at such a scale of, he was so free and so joyful despite having such a traumatic past. And I've really seen that. And when you meet people like that, you think this has to be more 
than just mind over matter. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. there are times when you can sort of buck your ideas up and cheer yourself up. This was another level, and uh, he would have said it was it was the presence of Jesus. And I, uh, yeah, I don't know how you could argue with that. <laughs> Once you meet him and you see that transformation, not only do you think there's something more to this than just sort of mind over matter, you also think, I really want that. Who doesn't want that level of peace and that level of presence and that level of freedom? And so my hope is that his story, when people read that, will give other people the sort of key to process their own hurts and to find their own freedom. Um, and he said the same. He said, tell my story. I want to see other people set free. And so, you know, as a, as a writer, that is your privilege. You get to share stories that connect people and bring freedom. Do you think that's the, the unnerving bit, though, the dangerous element when it comes to why Christians end up getting persecuted? when people are a part of the Jesus movement, they're not just enduring trauma. As you say, they find this amazing joy. And you make the point of talking in the book about the difference between not just being a witness, but how you view them as martyrs. Yeah, it's very, so interestingly, the Greek um, word that we translate witness, martyrs, we, you know, we know it in the West, a martyr is someone who has laid down their life for the faith. Mm -hmm. And in the New Testament language, it just meant a witness. But it's so interesting that the, do, the two go hand in hand. It, you know, <laughs> to be a martyr and to be a witness in the first century, there was, it was a very, <laughs> you know, it was, it was assumed that if you're a witness to the Jesus movement, then you could end up laying down your life. Um, and I, so I also mentioned the story of the 21 Egyptian martyrs um, who were executed by ISIS on a Libyan beach. And it's interesting that they had that same piece. And you can, it's quite a grueling video that was released online um, by ISIS soldiers. But it's interesting, you could see the men, they weren't scared, they weren't crying out for you know, um, mercy, they weren't denying their faith like I think maybe some people had expected them to. They were saying, look, we serve Jesus. Um, just like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in um, Daniel 3, they were like, look, you know, God can save us. And if he doesn't, then we're still not, we're not bowing down to, you know, we're not throwing a towel in, we're not bowing down to your gods. We are serving Jesus. He's our God. And, you know, but that, that is it. You know, it, you know it was a, it's real surrender. Um, but actually, there was a piece on them in that time. And I, I've seen it on my journey um, in people that suffered a lot and people that have overcome that. People who are, you know, that, that whole series of chapters in the book, five to eight, I tried to take lots of different sort of angles and not just tell the happily ever after stories. Because um, some people have laid down their lives and other people are still in prison. But actually, the golden thread running through all of those stories is still a real peace and a real joy. And all those people have found something in their faith in Jesus, which is worth all the sacrifice in the world. Um, and I really wanted to see those stories and to share those stories in the current generation. It's one thing to read it in the Hebrews 11 sort of hall of fame, um, right from Genesis to Revelation. It's a beautiful chapter that, but actually I've seen that same um, faith and that same joy in the current generation. Um, it's actually, as uh, there's a little um, photo book that I got from, uh, the media organization Sat7, um, who have a sort of campaign called Joy in the Midst, and they share lots of stories of um, believers all over the Middle East and North Africa. And they had that same sort of observation, actually, a lot of the people who whose stories are often reported as, as victims in the mainstream media, like, isn't it terrible what's happening to these poor Christians? Actually, that's not the way they tell the story. They have real joy. And uh, that's something that I think I wanted to share. 
Um, I didn't want to feed into the victim oppressor narrative. I wanted to show people that the real heroes, the real martyrs, the real witnesses in the Middle East and North Africa um, who, have, who have endured some difficult sort of situations, they're not people that are traumatized or people that are crying out like, it's not fair, you know? Mm. They're people who are such role models of faith and so joyful that it leaves people thinking, what is it? What have they got? And I really think there's something in the West, something in the sort of secular world, something in our generation that sees that countercultural joy and thinks that is not something that comes from the strength within. That's something transcendent. And I wanted to almost awaken that hunger in people to learn from those role models of faith from the Middle East and say, look, we can have the same thing. <laughs> um, and I hope as people read the book, that's what they catch. They catch that vision, they catch that joy, and they want to pursue it themselves. Dan Morris is my guest here on UCB1. You're listening to Life Issues. Good to have your company. Um, well, as we think about those lessons that we can translate, bring back into our culture, because it's quite easy to say, well, Dan, look, you, you've travelled the world. You've captured very different stories from very different cultures, very different historical landscapes, extremely different tensions when you think of politically what's happening. So how does that work out? You know, lessons learned that can be applied here in the West. We've got to talk about Heaven's Hooligans, Dave and Divi, from such intolerance you share, you know, that was exchanged for a deep, deep friendship. Um, I guess let's start start off with Dave and, and how his life was transformed. Yeah, so um, you're exactly right. I really wanted to capture some of those stories in our home nation. I didn't want people to think, yeah, that happens in other parts of the world. It's not really relevant here because, <laughs> you know, in the West, we have our conflicts and we have our disagreements and we have all the same problems that the rest of the world have. It looks different, but we all, I think, you know, people are people all over the world. Um, and the same, you know, we all have the capacity to love and hate, to find despair and to find hope. And in Dave, I saw all of that. Um, he's a good friend now. I'm a, you know, I know Dave really well, and he's um, he's a role model in in our culture. And so he comes from a life of his background as one of real violence. Um, he, as a kid, he used to say, <laughs> "I was just an angry kid," um, and he actually talked about violence as almost like an addiction, or anger as almost like an addiction. You just, and I think actually, and that's the way Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. Interestingly, um, it's something that can take hold of you. And uh, you know Jesus' teaching is to is to take hold of it quickly, but before you know the uh, you know to even say uh, you know a swear word to your brother, you've got to take hold of it because you know one thing leads to another. And I think Dave would admit that he was out of control, angry. Um, and when he got into the sort of football fighting world, it was just he said it fitted like a hand in a glove. You know, <laughs> if you're always angry and you can't control your rage and you get into a sort of fight club, then it's brilliant. It works really well. Um, and he kind of made this joke in our interview said, you know, and I was, I was quite happy. And he, he paused and went, well, not happy. <laughs> I mean, and he had this line that I always remembered. He said, happy people don't want to hurt people. Mm. And he sort of reflected that he was in that world and he was part of these gangs and he was getting into brawls all over the world. But he wasn't happy and he wasn't in control. And I think deep down he knew something about this isn't right. Um, and he, he hit rock bottom actually in Sweden. Um, he'd gone to, you know, as part of uh, Euros, I think, and had gone to with his gang to kind of get into a bit of a ruck with some Swedish fans. Um, and then he knocked this guy out and his his mates were jumping up and down on this guy's head and he thought, 
this is horrible. And he actually felt like, what am I part of? And ended up defending the guy and sort of getting people off him, like, look, you know, give him a break. Um, and just have that moment where he was thinking, what am I part of? And that desire to come in the opposite spirit and almost he wanted to lay down his life and repent and stop this and be good, <laughs> and, you know, but didn't know where to start. He didn't know God. He wasn't remotely interested in religion. His mum had become a Christian and his mum had said to him like, you know, you're going to become a Christian as well. And he was like, no chance. I don't like Christians. <laughs> um, but he called his mum from Sweden in a sort of moment of weakness and said, look, could you pray for me? And she wasn't particularly impressed of him because she'd seen him on the news. Um, actually in this in these fights and he said he said that was a moment of rock, rock bottom but it, what was interesting is often you hear people who have lives of addiction or whatever and they talk about rock bottom and that's the point they come back up again but he didn't come back up again he didn't he said I didn't have the strength within to sort of turn around um, he would still he was still angry and he would still get involved in dodgy stuff and it was actually a spiritual encounter, a real Damascus Road experience that, that changed his life. And it's quite extraordinary. Um, I talk about this in the book. It, it, was, a, it was a one moment. Now, this is what goes to me real faith for the story of Paul of Tarsus and um, his Damascus Road experience. Because you might think, if you've been absolutely crazy your entire life and you just have one spiritual encounter, surely that can't completely rewrite everything. <laughs> and with Dave, that was it. Uh, he got chatting to a girl. Um, he was doing some voluntary work, I think, to get some references for call. Um, she was a Christian, invited him to church. He thought she was quite nice and so went along basically to charm her. And then uh, in church, people were singing. He thought this is all a bit weird. Everyone was really nice, wasn't used to that. And then the guy was preaching and he just sensed the Holy Spirit convicting him. And he was, he wanted to cry, but it was like, you know, hold it together. Don't want to, he said, I don't want these mugs to see me upset. <laughs> so he just put his head down and pretended to be praying. So no one would draw attention to himself. He wouldn't draw attention as well, no one would notice. And then these guys came up to pray for him. And he was cross because he didn't like looking weak. And I think the, you know, these two, these two chaps on the prayer team probably had no idea how close they were to getting knocked out. And they were like, you know, are you okay? <laughs> He'd see Dave find his lip and like, don't hit him, we're in church. And he just in a moment of weakness, he said, look, what, what do I have to do to be a Christian? And the guy said, look, just pray as if God's here. So Dave started to pray and that was it. He said he remembers waking up on the floor, a different person. Um, and he still doesn't quite understand that experience. And he was trying to explain to us in the interview, being like, I don't really know what happened. I just started praying and I woke up on my back and all the hate and all the anger in my life had gone. And it seems ridiculous, you're like, what? And obviously there was still a process of healing and you know, he probably had to, to work out what a new life looked like, but he really was different. And from that moment on, I would say he fought as hard for love and peace as he had previously fought for violence. And so he became a prison chaplain and a football chaplain and now a Navy chaplain. And he is, when you meet him, he is one of both the strongest and most gentle people you'll meet. And that's, a, that's an interesting dynamic when someone is full of love, but it's a sort of resilient love uh, that goes into tough places and brings the presence of Jesus to, to tough people. Um, it's both strength and gentleness at the same time. And I think the two can be the same. Um, gentleness isn't necessarily weakness. Sometimes it's great strength. And he brings that. And it's an amazing thing to see. So Dan, where do, where do the Mitchells and the Thompsons fit into this story? So they, so Dave Mitchell and, uh, and the Thompsons, there's a, there's a few families in Bristol who have started this network of community houses. Um, and the story actually goes back to George Muller. Um, a lot of people might know George Muller was a famous German preacher who came to Bristol. Um, I mean, this is a long time ago, so this is a sort of Victorian era. 
um, and there was a lot of orphans in the streets of Bristol and he took them in, beautiful story. Uh, George Muller's one of my great heroes. He rescued, uh, I think 10,000 orphans in his lifetime and built these great homes to house them all. Um, uh, in fact, Charles Dickens actually came to visit George Muller because um, he didn't believe um, that it was so good and was stunned. He was like, these kids are having amazing education. They're really mm. well cared for. And Dickens wasn't a believer, but he actually wrote up and said, look, you've got to respect George Muller. People of all faiths and none have to say there's something beautiful about this story. And so as the years went on, and fortunately we don't have as many orphans now as we did, but I think some families in the city wanted to, to keep the spirit of George Muller going, to, to redeem and rescue and love and nurture people who have maybe had a bit of a tricky time. And so the Greg and Claire are the ones that I know in my community in Bristol, and the Mitchells as well, Dave. Actually, I know Joey Mitchell, his son, um, through my old job as a teacher. Um, but as a family, they, they started this sort of community house. Um, and just took people in, people like Dave, who've had a, you know, they've got a past and they want to change and they just need an environment to sort of grow and work out what their new life looks like. And so they took in Dave, Dave Jill, <laughs> the former football hooligan, and he spent a bit of time with them, just kind of working out what to do next, really. Um, and I said in the book, for a lot of people, taking a football hooligan into your home feels like a risk, but actually they saw in him his potential they saw what god had done in his life and they wanted to nurture that and actually i think their house was probably a lot safer with dave in there like he he would have protected the mitchell kids with his life and i feel like actually it's a beautiful story and it's one that ends well and not every story has that sort of happy ending we've known it as well in my house we've we've been a, a sort of house that's taken in different people over different you know over the sort of years we've lived in our community house we've had different people live with us um and when you have a story where someone you just play a small part in someone's journey and someone's healing that's a real privilege um, and we don't know what we're doing I'd say <laughs> we're not experts in this but just being able to be a place where people can find a bit of love like that's a beautiful thing and I'd say the Mitchells did that brilliantly and the Thompsons and all the, all the community houses across Bristol it's not um, there's lots of different it's not one or two there's lots of people now involved in this network and there's lots of people who have come into one of those houses a bit broken and found healing and found just had a space to pray and process and, and find life again and have left um, stronger and full of hope and uh, I mean, it's a beautiful thing and it's a privilege for me to be part of that really this trip to Middle East deserts, journeying from Egypt to Nazareth. But there was a few different things happening with this trip, weren't there, Dan? There was raising awareness about A21, but also, I guess, exploring Jesus's childhood. Yeah. So the way I explain it, there was a few things going on. The way I explained it in the book was that I was um, walking in the footsteps of the world's most famous refugee mm. to raise money for refugees in this generation. Um, so hopefully that draws the threads together. Um, so particularly in the wake of the Arab Spring, there's the increase in human trafficking was a bit of a, um, was just a real tragedy of our time. I think when there's a breakdown in law and order, some people take advantage of that situation um, and human trafficking had really flourished in the wake of the Arab Spring. There was lots of people who were sort of ready and waiting to sort of supposedly help people get to sanctuary and then use that situation to manipulate those people. And lots of people ended up trapped in a world that was possibly even darker than the one they left. 
in all sorts of uh, sort of forced labor and sex trafficking, just all the sort of worst things you can imagine were happening. Um, and I had read the story of uh, Christine Kane, who'd started um, A21, the organization. And, you know, similarly, she'd seen this when she was in Greece and just thought, this is horrendous. I want to do something about it. And she had been really convicted by the story of the Good Samaritan. And the fact that a Good Samaritan had went, he went to uh, the Jewish guy who had, had been knocked out by robbers. He didn't sort of wait around for someone to turn up at his door. He went to him. And she was just really convicted by that. So started this organization to go to the places where people have been tricked and trafficked and to rescue people. I mean, she, uh, she and her husband, Nick, they were way out of their depth. They received a lot of advice from professionals saying this is too difficult. The countries are too corrupt. The odds are stacked against you. It won't work. And they just felt, you know, like when people feel Jesus has told them to do something, they've got that faith. Um, I'd seen this all the way through my journey from Jose Enriquez through Kareem. You know, that same spirit was in um, Christine and Nick. And they said, look, we're doing this. And they did. And then they started A21 and it saw extraordinary success beyond what was humanly possible, as, as you get to know <laughs> when you follow Jesus. And they are right now working uh, all over the world. I think 14 countries now uh, rescuing people that have, you know, that have been tricked and trafficked and setting people free. And I thought, I want to be part of that. I mean, I'm, I'm just a geography teacher. What can I do? <laughs> I'm not, I can't, I don't speak many languages. I can't rescue people. I'm not special ops or not a lawyer. But I thought, well, I can raise money for them. I can help to fund them to do what they do well. And so that was part of it. But then also what occurred to me as I was sort of thinking about this was that Jesus himself was a refugee. Uh, you know, his first childhood memories would have been in Egypt. You know, <laughs> he was born in Bethlehem, but actually we don't start to remember things until we're sort of two to five, generally, it's, you know, it's a very mm -hmm. depending on the person. But actually his first memories would have been in exile in Egypt. And probably his first significant memory of a journey would have been that journey home from Egypt to Nazareth through hundreds of miles of desert trails and dirt tracks. So actually for refugees in the current generation, who fled wars, who know what it's like to go on the road, who, who know what it's like to be hungry and tired and stuck in a desert, relying on the kindness of strangers and <laughs> struggling to get water and dodging wild animals. Um, that's the same today as it was 2000 years ago. And Jesus knew that world. So I kind of wanted to capture both. I wanted to raise awareness of what's going on in the current generation. I kind of, as you say, wanted to step into Jesus' life at his most vulnerable. And that's the thing I love about Jesus is he we're used to worshiping him and all his glory and you know we have these beautiful uh, lines like in colossians about him being the image of the invisible god and the firstborn over all creation and i love that but you also have to remember that when he stepped into the frame of human history he he didn't come as a sort of prince on a war horse or <laughs> live in a palace and philippians 2 i think captures that beautifully um you know he he came as a servant um, he humbled himself <laughs> and became a man and just, you know, he was both. He was both the God of glory, but also a humble refugee child fleeing from an evil dictator. And I wanted to capture both by walking in his footsteps. And, um, you know, you can learn about Jesus, but there's something about making that journey and trying to get into his first earthly steps and experiencing what he experienced in a tiny measure. Obviously, I wasn't fleeing from King Herod. I wouldn't claim to have really understood the life of a refugee in this generation, but just to walk in that journey and to face some of the hardship of the journey itself and use that really as a sort of platform to invite people into Jesus' life and into all these things, not by talking about it, but by living it and by walking that journey.
I think about the moment in the book where you share you were trying to take a little bit of a shortcut and were in this kind of area where you very much felt guided. I think a friend had prayed that God would help you find the right direction. And here you were in the desert in a situation that, you know, it was a new, newish experience compared to some of the other adventures you've been on, traveling hundreds of miles as well. A moment like that, how has that stayed with you when we've been so restricted, not being able to travel the world? The the close proximity that it seems you had with God in the desert in that moment, how has an experience like that stayed with you as you look back to, to that time and the, the adventure that you had? Yeah, and it's so important. I'd say for everybody, actually, it's worth... I think everybody has moments when God turns up in a dramatic way. And you see this throughout the scriptures so often. You have these amazing moments and then people just forget. And one of the, I think one of the most often repeated commands in scripture is just remember. Mm. Um, and it's so it's so easy to remember the things that you need or I find this, I can you know have a grumble about the things I haven't got and just forget the good that God's done. Um, and so for me, it's really important to look back to that moment and remember whatever's happening, you think actually God was there for you in that moment, Dan, <laughs> don't, don't forget it. And that, that sort of gratitude and that remembering gives you the fuel, I think, to have faith for the next moment. I heard John Mark Homer say the other day that actually gratitude and faith are two sides of the same coin. It's really, it's a really helpful picture. And so I'll tell you the story in the desert because it's probably people want to know what happened in that ravine. <laughs> and so I, you're right, I'd taken a shortcut. I was basically, I needed to get to Jerusalem to meet some friends who were coming back out, Sweden and uh, I mentioned before, and Louise, who joined me in Chile, were coming to meet me in Jerusalem. We were going to meet some real peacemakers in the land, Sami Awad and, and the, the Saar family from the Tenta Nations, amazing people. And that was happening in February. And I had, you know, I'd lined it all up. I had my days I was going to walk and I basically wasn't going to make it. Um, I was walking too slowly. <laughs> the, the mountains were too big. And so I was on a sort of trail that existed in the wilderness for hikers, but it was quite sparse. It wasn't like, it wasn't quite like a Camino. It was more like you walking through the desert. Mm. Um, but even on a trail I was on, I wasn't going to make it. And so there was this sort of shortcut I could see by, by branching off the trail, walking up the Jordan Valley and then sort of cutting back up into the mountains of the Negev on the second day. I could basically save myself a week. But that meant leaving the map um and in particular in the valley i had no phone signal i just all my normal sort of ways of navigating were gone and it was definitely a risk but i had to do it because i wouldn't have made it in time <laughs> otherwise so i took this route the first day was fine i was in the jordan valley which was quite you know as a road there it's you know as service stations that's fine um, but after i left that valley i was by myself and i got a bit lost uh, <laughs> as you said and um there's a few things that happened up in that point. I'd run out of water. I'd seen wolves, and I hadn't. I wasn't aware up until this point there was wolves in the Negev. Um, so I started to get a little bit frightened. You know, not petrified, but just a bit uneasy, shall we say, that I was surrounded by wild animals. I was on my last dregs of water, and the, the point I was trying to get to at the top of a mountain, there was a source of water, and I'm like, I've got to get there. And also, once you know, once the sun sets in a desert, it goes from from heat to cold very quickly. And so I thought, if I'm stuck in this ravine, I haven't got water, I haven't, you know, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and the desert's like that. When it's going well, you know, you can hike for the desert, uh, particularly for the Negev, it's not as big as like the Sahara. When life's going well, it's quite fun. But when something goes wrong, suddenly it goes very wrong. Mm. Um, and for me, I was in one of those moments where it could go very wrong. And there was the, the route up out of this ravine was so steep. There was basically a sort of polished slab at the end of the valley. And I'm like, how can I climb that? Um, and I'd obviously lost the trail, 
and I was about to climb it. Um, I had a pack a third of my body weight on my back. It was a long old way up this ravine and I'm like, there's nothing for it. And I, in that moment, I felt like God say, go back. And it was such a strong conviction. And I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm like prophecy isn't something I'm, it's natural or normal for me. It's something I'm really learning, um, but I wouldn't say I'm an expert. And this is quite a new experience for me to, to feel like God speaking so directly. And I questioned it. I'm like, am I imagining this as you, you know, as you would a slightly skeptical person like this. Um, but it was such a strong conviction. I just couldn't fight it. And I felt like going back would be the worst idea because that's losing time. <laughs> you know, I need to go forward. You never retreat. Um, but I just couldn't do it. And it felt like when I turned back, it didn't feel like I was like God was trying to command me. It almost felt more like an invitation, like just trust me. So I went back and I just started, you know, I might as well just go with this. And so I started almost praying for guidance and just doing what I felt like God say. And I just felt he put my heart go left. So I kind of snake left across this little valley. <laughs> and I picked up this random little trail with such a tiny path. It was marked by like a little painted flag on a rock. You would never have seen it before. And that path led out of ravine and actually crossed, it bridged over that slab, which I would foolishly been planning to climb <laughs> a few moments earlier. And this path went all the way up, up sort of through the mountain pass. And it was fine, it was safe. I mean, it, was, it was still quite a dangerous path, I had to be careful, but um, there was bits where you were scrambling up rocks. But the alternative would have been way more serious. And uh, I'm not experienced enough as a climber, certainly not with the pack I had, to have made it all the way up, I don't think, without a fall. Um, and actually when I was, uh, my illustrator for the book, Elisa, wonderful illustrator, very talented. And she um, did some sketches for um, some of the chapters in the book. And she, when she was reading the book said, actually her parents had taken a trip to the Negev, just a day trip many years before um, when they were in Israel and they had found someone who had collapsed and who his body was decomposed and they actually identified him sadly from his belt buckle. Sounds quite bleak. And I thought, wow, that could have been me. You know, if you fall, if I'd fallen in that valley, mm. um, I was all by myself. I was off the map. You know, <laughs> when would someone have found me? Who knows? Um, and so, yeah, it was quite a sort of, it's quite an intense moment. But it was also a moment where I felt like it brought it home to me. All these stories I'd been encountering of people hearing from God and having peace and all this sort of stuff that I'd <laughs> seen in other people's lives. It was a moment when I experienced that. I experienced the peace of God. I experienced the voice of God. Almost that invitation to be like, look, you're in a difficult situation, but trust me. And thank the Lord I obeyed. It was really 50-50. I could have just climbed the slab and might not be here now. Um, but actually, I think there's something in that life of a peacemaker, life in, the faith, in faith in Jesus. It's not about a sort of set of commands you've got to follow. It's a real invitation. Jesus says, follow me. And he says, do what I say, not because he's sort of controlling, but because he's like, look, I've got a plan. I've got an adventure for you. It's going to be fun. It might not be easy, but just trust me. And I really found that. Uh, I trusted him and it worked out. And now, as you say, you look back on those moments, you remember those moments and you think, yes. It's, and I can think of bad examples that I made a mistake and it never works out. And I can think of good examples like that when I did trust God and it did work out. And remembering those moments, I think helps you to say, look, it's worth following Jesus and it's worth doing what he tells you to do. And so, yeah, that's, I'd encourage anyone listening to have that sort of reflection, to remember those moments when God's spoken and to sort of rekindle faith for the next step.
it's learning to recognize the good shepherd's voice isn't it and that does each of us take us on a unique journey dan it's been so refreshing to hear of the doors that god has clearly opened up to you the opportunities you've been able to walk through and to capture so many real authentic voices of how obviously god is moving in people's lives dan morris's book is called finding the peacemakers a journey of faith from the mines of chile to the deserts of the middle east dan i have a feeling that your tenacious curiosity this isn't the end of your adventures so i look forward to hearing more about where god takes you next in our amazing world thank you dan oh thanks vicky jesus the prince of peace in his sermon on the mount said blessed are the peacemakers and as we've heard from dan today That involves intentional action from each of us to help build bridges of reconciliation and understanding whenever and wherever we find conflict around us. As much as environmental action has become a global movement today, surely forging peace is equally a necessity. And what a difference around the world it could bring if we all joined in. Dan Morris's book is called Finding the Peacemakers, a journey of faith from the mines of Chile to the deserts of the Middle East. I'm Vicky Gibbons, and until next time, thank you for listening to Life Issues on UCB.